This episode is sponsored by William Shakespeare's Get Thee Back to the Future by Ian Desher. In the iconic film by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, teenaged Marty McFly travels back in time from the 1980s to the 1950s, changing the path of his parents' destiny, as well as his own. Now fans of the movie can journey back even further, to the 16th century when the Bard of Avon unveils his latest masterpiece, William Shakespeare's Get Thee Back to the Future. Every scene and line of dialogue from the hit movie is recreated with authentic Shakespearean rhyme, meter, and stage directions. By the time you've finished reading, you'll be convinced that Shakespeare had a time-traveling DeLorean of his own. Thanks to William Shakespeare's Get Thee Back to the Future by Ian Desher for sponsoring this episode of Recommended. You can find it wherever books are sold or click the link in our show notes. You're listening to Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. Today, Nikki Drayden and Helen Ellis talk about books that captured their attention in big ways. Nikki Drayden is a systems analyst who dabbles in prose when she's not buried in code. She resides in Austin, Texas, where being weird is highly encouraged, if not required. Her debut novel, The Prey of Gods, was a best-of-the-year pick by Book Riot, Vulture, and RT Book Reviews. In her latest novel, Temper, twin brothers are beset by powerful forces beyond their understanding or control in this thrilling blend of science fiction, horror, magic, and dark humor. My name is Nikki Drayden, and Nigerians in Space by Deji Bryce Olekatun is my recommended. Nigerians in Space is a matter moon rock heist, and it is a cross-genre, um, kind of a thriller with a little bit of science fiction and fantasy thrown in there. Um, it follows a Dr. Wale Olufufumi, who is a lunar rock geologist for NASA. He has this kind of a cool life set up for himself. He's working for NASA. He has a wife and kids, but he's feeling like he's a little bit stalled in his career. He's getting passed over for promotions and he's just really super frustrated. And he's kind of a guy who has, you know, these big dreams and ambitions and, you know, playing with moon rocks and kind of cataloging things. Wally gets a mysterious call from a man um, named Bello, who is a Nigerian politician. And he has this big idea that he wants to solve this problem of brain gain or brain brain dream. Um, it's this theory that, that we're having to deal with now. It's a lot of countries are losing their intellectual people to you know, like places like the United States and places in Europe. And they're just kind of just losing those intellectual resources. So that's called brain drain. And so brain gain is kind of the opposite where he wants to pull those intellectuals back to their home country in Nigeria. And um, Wale is a Nigerian immigrant. It kind of appeals to him, this idea. And he's kind of it's kind of like this mysterious thing where nobody really knows what's going on with this project. And so he he's able to track down enough information that he thinks it's going to be like a legit enough that he can pursue it because um, there's just like one catch, which is in order to kind of prove himself that he's committed to this project, he has to steal uh, one of the moon rocks from NASA. And it's kind of like a low priority moon rock. It is from the first uh, lunar mission, but it's kind of like a contingency sample or something. So it's not as important. It's more like a, a symbolic gesture of that he just really wants to join this team. There's this awesome heist scene, and then he's able to escape the country with this moon rock and his family. And of course, um, 
things never go as planned in books, <laughs> particularly this one. And sometime during his escape, they go to Stockholm and he loses contact with Bello, who is his um, the contact for this project. And he's stuck in Stockholm with no visa to get to Nigeria. He definitely can't go back to America. And he starts poking around trying to find other people associated with the project, but they start turning up dead and missing. And he's got a feeling that he might be next. It has a where in the world is Carmen San Diego kind of feel to it because it's kind of going all over the place. And it's super fun, uh, super thrilling, a little bit of a geeky side to it. So it's kind of really cool. I really enjoyed it. I definitely like to seek out books from a lot of different places. I think there's just so much out there. And we're kind of like, from me being in the U.S., fed this like narrow band of very focused work. And it's always good to see, to me, to see other places. I take particular interest in Africa and also South Africa because I visited there like back when I was in college and so just, you know, giving people a chance who might not be able to take that trip to take it in a virtual kind of way and just to get immersed in um, these worlds because there's just so much out there. One thing I really enjoyed about this book was that it, it skips around in time a little bit. And so from Wally, who's the main character, he has his son I mentioned, and his son is just kind of like a toddler in the first, in his part of the, the book. But there's also a book from the son's point of view, like later on, like 20 years later. And so we get this, a play back and forth between like father and son, even though the father that we're getting to know is just a like, very young father. And then the son, he's trying to find his own um, place in this world. I mean, he's living in South Africa. He's trying to make a name for himself and also kind of live up to his father's dream. And so he's doing these touristy things and like he has some invention, I will say, um, that he's trying to get up and running. The second book is called After the Flare. And the, it's a sequel technically, but they could be read as standalones. Like some of the characters overlap just a little bit, um, but you can totally read it without it. I would say this is more heavily like science fiction and fantasy, more rooted in the genre than the first. If you're more into that science fiction and fantasy, this might be where you want to start. But it's set in a near future where like right off the bat, it's like as soon as you open the book, a giant, huge, just massive solar flare knocks like most of the world offline, including like an international space, space station and there are four astronauts up there, but only three of them are able to fit in the escape capsule. And so there's one fourth astronaut who's stuck up there and she's kind of in this decaying orbit and they have like a year and a half to figure a way to get her down. And there's only a problem and they have to figure out a way to launch a rescue mission before the astronaut burns up. And so it's kind of this post-apocalyptic world with people trying to get into space. And the main character in that one is Quasi Brackett, who he was a lead engineer at NASA, um, but he got laid off because, you know, there's no computers. <laughs> he worked for NASA's neutral buoyancy lab. Now his task for um, the Nigerian space program is to set up this massive anti-gravity simulation pool called Niji Pool and get it up and running so astronauts can have like a, a place to practice the rescue mission. And it's really like 
time sensitive and he's on the, he has all these deadlines. He's behind schedule trying to get the pool filled up. And after the flare, one of my favorite parts was the technology because the technology in this book um, just surpassed like anything I've seen in, in science fiction and fantasy before. It was just like so inventive. And there are these things called G-phones, which is short for gecko phones. And basically, you know, in the future, instead of having like your little blocky cell phone, you have these phones that are shaped like actual animals and that are animate and they're able to seek out their own power source. But someone who's always forgetting to charge their cell phone, this seems like really attractive. The phone could pretty much just like jump out of your purse and like go plug into a light and sap power from, you know, from the light or like go to the roof and like get, you know, solar power, whatever means it needs to to recharge itself. And um, there's this one point in the story where Brackett is in the car, they're driving somewhere and the car starts like slowing down and they're like, did we run out of gas? Like what's going on? And it turns out his gecko phone had jumped out of his pocket and had gone under the console of the car and was like sucking power from the car's cables. I think it's like if you're really into things that might not be tightly plotted, but just kind of organically growing and going in all directions, which I love, the weirder, the better. I think it might be for you. I can only aspire to to Deji's style of writing. I don't think I could ever mimic it, but it was just so... The prose was so amazing and so deep and also fun. And so there's a lot of a lot of that going on. And there was um, just this one passage where I think Bella was speaking, and I think this was an after the flare, about how humanity and, and the flare and humanity is very similar. There's this some plants when they give off seeds, the seeds are not able to sprout unless like the seed casing has scorched by fire. And so it was this very lovely analogy to how humanity has been scorched by this flare and that now is our time to sprout and be, you know, show our ingenuity and be inventive and show that how we can bounce back from this awful situation. Thanks again to Nikki Drayden for joining us and recommending Nigerians in Space by Deji Bryce Olakotun. Temper, published by Harper Voyager, is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Nikki Drayden. This episode is sponsored by William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Mean Girls by Ian Desher. Power struggles, bitter rivalries, jealousy, betrayals, star-crossed lovers... When you consider all these plot points, it's pretty surprising William Shakespeare didn't write Mean Girls. But now fans can treat themselves to this epic drama and heroic hilarity of the classic teen comedy rendered with the wit, flair, and iambic pentameter of the bard. Our heroine Katie disguises herself to infiltrate the conniving plastics, falls for off-limits Aaron, struggles with her allegiance to newfound friends Damien and Janice, and stirs up age-old vendettas among the factions of her high school. Best-selling author Ian Desher brings his signature Shakespearean wordsmithing to this cult classic. Pick up William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Mean Girls by Ian Desher wherever books are sold or click the link in our show notes. Helen Ellis is the acclaimed author of Eating the Cheshire Cat and the national bestseller American Housewife. She's a poker player who competes on the national tournament circuit. Raised in Alabama, she lives with her husband in New York City. 
Her most recent book, Southern Lady Code, is a raucous essay collection offering readers a hilarious, completely singular view on womanhood for both sides of the Mason-Dixon. Hi, it's Helen Ellis, and I'm recommending Wifey from 1970 by Judy Bloom. Wifey is a 1970s stay-at-home housewife, becomes bored, and decides to do something about it. And I mean, and by it, I mean have an affair (laughs) and masturbate and sexually fantasize about the motorcyclist who is naked on her front lawn. I first encountered Wifey because it was a banned book where I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The book came out in 1970, the year I was born. It was a very good year. No more smallpox vaccinations, thank goodness. It's something I became aware of because in the fourth grade, of course, we were all reading Forever, which was also banned. And, you know, we wanted more than Blubber and Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. And Wifey was Judy Bloom's first adult novel. And it was banned. And we all wanted to know about it. I approached this book at the bookseller, which is a used bookstore in the bottom of the Webster Library branch on the Upper East Side. And I sort of saw it as an illicit lover because that cover is iconic from the 70s. It's a picture of a woman's bare stomach, slight under boob, (laughs) and a ring, her her taking her ring off. So the cover itself is absolutely titillating. And then opening it, again, it was Judy Bloom. So it's someone that I had grown up with who taught me about my period, (laughs) who taught me about how to make my boobs bigger with I know, I know, I know that they will grow exercises. And um, taught me about Losing Your Virginity with Forever. And this book was so out of the park for her. It was adult. It's extremely sexual. It is not at all edited. There, you know, she has sexual fantasies. They're explicit. She just talks very openly about a stifling marriage and ends up staying in the marriage and deciding to fix the once a week sex she has with her dentist husband, but it was just thrilling because it's got great sex in it. (laughs) It's got a great story in it. You can relate to it. You know, I've never read The Hobbit, (laughs) but I have read all of the Judy Bloom books. When I was younger and I read this, there was a sex scene where she knew she was going to have sex with someone at a party. This character, she was wearing a long silk Halston-like dress. And she was so aroused, she put a tampon in and she did not have her period. And I had never heard of such a thing. And I thought it was just the biggest, excuse my pun, juiciest secret that I'd ever heard. And then the other thing I remember about this book was that it seemed like real adult life. And this character, Sandy Pressman, goes to the same party and remarks as to what the hostess is serving and the hostess was serving what she always served, which was grilled filet mignon on toast points. And I thought that was the most exotic food you could imagine. So other Judy Bloom books 
that were my favorites were, of course, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. That told you things that maybe you weren't being told. And when I say you, I mean me growing up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So told you what your period was, told you about bra shopping, told you exactly how sanitary products worked. But this was written in the 70s. So I remember reading it and she described a sanitary napkin with a belt. And I went to my mother, God bless her, and said, what in the living hell, a belt? <laughs> and uh, my mom, mama says, oh, Helen Michelle, you know, it's changed. We've, we're much more advanced now. I haven't read Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, in 30, 40 years. But I think that I heard they updated the text to talk about tampons. And I am not happy about that change, if that's a real change, because as a girl in the 80s, getting my period, I was very grateful that I didn't have to strap on my maxi pad like I was going rappelling down the side of a hill. So that was one favorite. And the second favorite book, of course, is Forever, which was also banned. I read Forever in the fourth grade because Angel Rayburn had an copy from Atlanta and it went all around Alberta Elementary School with all the highlighted parts and I can still remember marveling over how a bra clips in the front. I will never ever forget the name Ralph and I learned about putting a towel down. That's all I'll say about that. So I relate to Wifey as a writer and as a woman because for a very long time, I identified as a housewife, and I still identify as a housewife. If you're a stranger and you meet me and you say, what do you do? Usually I'll say housewife instead of writer because I value that sense of privacy. And when you say you're a housewife, there really is never another question. I like that secrecy and privacy of you never know what's happening with the woman left alone for nine hours a day and left to her own devices. And my last book was called American Housewife. And that's exactly what it was about. Short stories about women who got up to crazy things because they were alone in their castles, even if their castle was an Upper East Side apartment. Even now with Southern Lady Code, I write what I know. So I write about home life and the drama that is domestic drama that I find so much more illicit and intriguing than a spy novel. Wifey is a book I would not give to everyone. I would not give it to my nine-year-old niece yet. <laughs> I might give it to my husband just to keep him on his toes. But I would give Wifey to any woman between the ages of 16 and 96. And I think you appreciate it more after you are married. You don't have to be married, but I think the whole book is about what people keep from each other or how they communicate with each other and how you never really know what's going on within a marriage. That's really up for those people to agree upon. <laughs> yes. I never read it until my 30s because I could not get a hold of it. And then I reread it, I would say, a few years ago in my book club, because I'm in a book club that's a classic trashy book club. 
which means we read books that are at least 20 years old, were banned, labeled chiclet or erotica, or made into a 1980s miniseries. And this book, Wifey, got A's across the board from our hateful eight. We had been meeting, I'm going to say, for about six years. We've read over 50 books. All the books are classics in that they were, like I say, made-for-TV miniseries, bestsellers. So we started Classic Trashy Book Club because we wanted to go back to the books that were illicit when we were growing up. And what I like about my Classic Trashy Book Club books are they are usually large books. Um, And when I say large, you know, physically large books that are a lifetime. They're written by women who are middle-aged, and middle-aged women know a thing or two and aren't afraid to tell you. My group, all of us are pushing 50, and we've all experienced sort of second chapters. Even me, when I came out with American Housewife, there'd been a 15-year dry spell of writing, and I never thought I was going to write another book. So, It's just all the sweeter. Everything that happens to you over 45 that's new or new again to you is just all the more delicious. And sex is good, too. (laughs) And you learn a thing or two. You know, you learn a thing or two. Let me tell you, you think you know everything about sex, and then you read Lace by Shirley Conrad, and you find out something you can do with a goldfish. Or you read The Other Side of Midnight by Sidney Sheldon, and you find out something you can do with menthol. Or you read Hollywood Wives by Jackie Collins, and you hear about how a three-way can go terribly, terribly wrong. Or you read a recent favorite, The Lord Won't Mind, and learn all about 1970s man-on-man sex. Enjoyable. Thanks again to Helen Ellis for joining us and recommending Wifey by Judy Bloom. Southern Lady Code, published by Doubleday, is now available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at What I Do All Day. Thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended, and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com. 